and welcome to A Satanist Reads the Bible, exploring the Bible, Christianity, and other religions and their sacred texts through the lens of Satanism in order to reinvent religion for myself. Originally, this was part of a series called Bizarre Bible Stories that looked at stories from the Bible that might have been overlooked in popular culture and which are particularly funny or have some weird implications. I've got an episode called Bizarre Bible Stories that covers the story of Abraham and Sarah in Egypt, but I actually think that this one stands best on its own. For one thing, it's not from the Bible, but rather from the Apocrypha, which is a really interesting subject in itself. Apocrypha are texts relating to Christianity which are non-canonical. They often look a great deal like the texts we're already familiar with, such as those in the Bible, but they weren't accepted as part of the Christian textual canon for whatever reason, and that reason tends to vary from text to text. But aside from that, this has been one of my most popular essays, and I think it works best standing on its own. I'm going to jump into the reading, and then afterwards there will be some additional discussion, but a little bit of housekeeping first. First up, you might have noticed that I took last week off. I'm working on a theatrical production, and last week was Tech Week, the week where everyone gets together in the space and figures out lights and spacing, and how the technical aspects of the show are going to work. Things like dress rehearsals and test audiences are a part of that, and it's a very intensive process. I'm going to be talking more about it in an upcoming piece on the philosophy of theater, but the point is that there was just no way that I could fulfill my obligations to the theater company that hired me and also do the podcast up to the standard that you deserve, so I just took a week off. But now Tech Week is done and the show is up and running and it's glorious again. I'm going to be talking more about that in an upcoming episode, one that I'm going to guess is going to be going up on Friday the 13th of March, and I can return at least some of my energy towards this little pet project of mine that I'm absolutely overjoyed that more and more people are taking an interest in and finding useful. I just put up some bonus content for my patrons, and if you find this useful yourself, just $2 a month on Patreon makes a big impact in my life. I've been listening to some other podcasts, too, just to see what I might be doing differently or better, and I'm actually pretty happy about how my work stacks up. I'd still like to get better at the recording quality, but I think I'm making some good progress on that now that I have some new equipment on hand and a better sense of where to put the mic in relation to my face so as to get the best sound. But, in terms of content at least, I think the quality of my work is at least comparable to some of the big players in the Patreon podcast scene. My favorite right now is Philosophize This by Stephen West, and I've joined in on the Patreon for that show. I read a lot of primary sources and sometimes fail to see the forest for the trees when it comes to understanding the broader picture of philosophical movements, and Mr. West's podcast has helped me out a great deal with that in the last few weeks. It's just outstanding work across the board, and I highly recommend it, and I'm guessing that a familiarity with what he's laying down is going to add a huge amount of richness to understanding what I'm talking about. I hope that the converse is true as well. My approach is obviously very niche, but my goal for this whole thing is that it be relevant to anyone at all who's interested in philosophy, and philosophy of religion in particular, not just Satanists. Okay, on to the reading. This is A Gay Orgy with Jesus.
What we now call the New Testament is a curation of documents both authentic and forged, each culled from numerous extant versions, selected from a vast body of similar literature. The Biblical New Testament contains Gospels, stories and sayings of Jesus, Acts, histories of the early church fathers, epistles, letters written by various church fathers or forged in their name, and one apocalyptic revelation. In each of these genres, what is contained within the New Testament represents only a fraction of the available literature from the period. The documents that ultimately ended up included in the biblical canon were selected not because they were the most historically accurate or authentic, but because they were the most in keeping with the orthodoxy of those who came to dominate the early church. Those texts that might have been part of the biblical canon but which were culled for one reason or another are known as Apocrypha, and one of my favorites among these is a document of which we have no copy, only a letter hinting at its existence, the Secret Gospel of Mark. As the story goes, a biblical scholar, Morton Smith, was doing research in a library in Jerusalem in 1958. He chanced upon a letter that appeared to have been written by one of the second century church fathers, Clement of Alexandria. This letter was a response to one unknown Theodore, who appeared to have been asking Clement's opinion on a secret gospel authored by the same person who had written the gospel now known under the name of Mark, and which was purported to contain Jesus' secret teachings. We have extensive writings from Clement, and forging something in his style that would pass the rigorous linguistic analysis applied by modern scholars would have been extremely difficult, though there remains some controversy on this matter. In this letter, it appears that Clement acknowledges the existence of a secret gospel, but says that it has been corrupted by a sect known as the Carpocratians. Clement quotes various scriptures in the general condemnation of the Carpocratians, which opens the letter, and then proceeds into a history of the secret gospel itself, quoting here from Smith's own translation of the letter. As for Mark, then, during Peter's stay in Rome, he wrote an account of the Lord's doings, not, however, declaring all of them, nor yet hinting at the secret ones, but selecting what he thought most useful for increasing the faith of those who were being instructed. But when Peter died a martyr, Mark came over to Alexandria, bringing both his own notes and those of Peter, from which he transferred to his former book the things suitable to whatever makes for progress towards knowledge. Thus, he composed a more spiritual gospel for the use of those who were being perfected. End of quote. So this secret gospel contains hidden teachings which might reveal the higher mysteries of God to those with the proper spiritual background. But, as mentioned, it is the opinion of Clement that this document has been corrupted by the heretical Christian sect known as the Carpocratians, the followers of Carpocrates, against whom Clement, as well as the church father Irenaeus, have written other polemics. Clement explains this further in the next paragraph, quoting here. 
But since the foul demons are always devising destruction for the race of men, Carpocrates, instructed by them and using deceitful arts, so enslaved a certain presbyter of the church in Alexandria that he got from him a copy of the secret gospel, which he both interpreted according to his blasphemous and carnal doctrine and, moreover, polluted, mixing with the spotless and holy words utterly shameless lies. From this mixture is drawn off the teaching of the Carbocratians. End of quote. Whatever the content of this secret gospel of which we have no copy, Clement certainly doesn't like it, but the story he's telling of its corruption is rather fanciful. Carpocrates was compelled by demons to enslave a minister of the church in Alexandria and compelled this minister in turn to give Carpocrates the original version of the secret gospel, which Carpocrates then reauthored, including some of his own words, after which he reinserted it into circulation. Maybe this, or a similar but perhaps less fantastic version, is exactly the case. Without full copies of both the original secret gospel and Carpocrates' revised version, we can't really say, but at the very least, that wouldn't make the revised document any less authentic and potentially canonical than, for example, the biblical book of Ephesians, which is almost certainly an outright forgery written in the name of Paul the Apostle rather than by his hand. But this is where things get interesting, because Clement proceeds to quote some especially problematic, in his view, passages from this revised secret gospel, and I quote here from one of these. And Jesus and his disciples come into Bethany, and a certain woman whose brother had died was there, and coming she prostrated herself before Jesus and says to him, Son of David, have mercy on me. But the disciples rebuked her, and Jesus, being angered, went off with her into the garden where the tomb was, and straightway a great cry was heard from the tomb. And going near, Jesus rolled away the stone from the door of the tomb, and straight away, going, for, going in where the youth was, he stretched forth his hand and raised him, seizing his hand. But the youth, looking upon him, loved him, and began to beseech him that he might be with him. And going out of the tomb, they came into the house of the youth, for he was rich. And after six days, Jesus told him what to do, and in the evening, the youth comes to him wearing a linen cloth over his naked body, and he remained with him that night, for Jesus taught him the mystery of the kingdom of God, and thence arising, he returned to the other side of the Jordan." You wouldn't be alone in thinking that there were some homoerotic overtones here, but it gets better. Following the above, Clement references some sort of ritual described in the text in which Jesus partook with this raised youth and some of his other followers, in which lay naked man with naked man. As long as we're on the subject, let's take a closer look at the biblical verses that have been used historically as prohibitions against homosexuality, starting with the infamous Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. 
First of all, what exactly is the book of Leviticus? The third book of the Torah might well be translated the book of the law of the priests. It is largely concerned with sacrifice and ritual, and by extension, ritual cleanliness, but a few chapters, of which 18, chapter 18 is one, concern more general moral law. Leviticus 18 begins... The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to your people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not follow their statutes. My ordinances you shall observe, and my statutes you shall keep, following them. I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and my ordinances. By doing so, one shall live. I am the Lord. For context, chapter 17 concerns procedures for the ritual slaughter of animals, and chapter 19 concerns ritual cleanliness. Chapter 18 seems to be concerned with making sure that the ancient Hebrews differentiate themselves culturally and ethically from those whose lands they inhabit. Nevertheless, chapter 18 in particular provides several common-sense commands regarding sexual behavior, not leering at naked relatives, mostly. So, though it seems a bit out of place in the context of the surrounding chapters, th these verses do indeed seem to be general moral prohibitions rather than laws limited specifically to ritual cleanliness. What about that word abomination? The Hebrew is toabah. Where else does it appear? How else is it used throughout the Bible? I'll present words that have been translated from toabah in different verses. It comes up as either abomination or abhorrent. In Genesis 43.32, it refers to the Egyptians' prohibitions against dining with Hebrews. In Genesis 46.34, it refers to the Egyptians' disdain for shepherds. Exodus 8.26 again concerns Egyptians, this time with regards to sacrifice. In this verse, Moses is talking with his brother Aaron about how to get away with making a sacrifice to God, a sacrifice that the Egyptians would find abhorrent, without, translated from Toabah, without getting themselves stoned to death. In Deuteronomy 7, 25-26, God commands that the idols of other religions be burned because they are abhorrent. Deuteronomy 12.31 and 13.14 say that it is abhorrent to participate in the rituals of other religions. Deuteronomy 14.3 prohibits the eating of abhorrent things. Presumably anything that isn't listed in verses 4 to 21 of that chapter. Uh, Deuteronomy 17.1 and 17.4 say that it is abhorrent to sacrifice to God an ox or a sheep with a birth defect. Deuteronomy 18.9 and 18.12 say once again that the customs of the non-Hebrews are abhorrent. There are many more verses, including the word toabah, but perhaps at this point you've noticed the same pattern that I have. We tend to think of the words abhorrent and abomination as describing actions and entities of obvious and exceptional depravity, but it's clear that the biblical meaning is something else entirely. 
We tend to think of the words abhorrent and abomination as describing actions and entities of obvious and exceptional depravity, but it's clear that the biblical meaning is something else entirely. Toabah is used consistently to differentiate the practices of the ancient Hebrews from those of the surrounding cultures. Toabah just means not the Jewish way of doing things. By saying that lying with a man as with a woman is abomination, God isn't saying that it's wrong or harmful or evil any more than eating pork or shellfish is evil, it's just not Jewish. And this interpretation fits well with the intention of the chapter as stated in its introduction. Granted, Leviticus 18.22 is still homophobic, but it must be considered in its historical context and as part of a system of ritual practices that have been almost entirely abrogated. When was the last time you heard of a synagogue or church making a burnt offering to God, as is commanded in Leviticus 1, quoting here, The bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer the blood, dashing the blood against all sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The burnt offering shall be flayed and cut up into its parts. The sons of the priest Aaron shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood up on the fire. Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the parts with the head and the suet on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs shall be washed with water. Then the priests shall turn the whole into smoke on the altar as a burnt offering, an offering by fire of pleasing odor to the Lord." To the extent that Christians believe at all that they must keep the Jewish law, they might offer that Christ Jesus was the Lamb offered as the final sacrifice to God, thus abrogating the need for the above. Would that not as well abrogate the authority of Leviticus 18.22, especially given that Leviticus is mostly concerned with Jewishness and that Christianity is concerned with a different and broader relationship between the God of Abraham and all the people of the world? And if the synagogues aren't making the burnt offering and the grain offering and the offerings of well-being and the sin offering and all the other various rituals and sacrifices mandated by Leviticus, what business do they have claiming that one verse as authoritative? If we turn to the New Testament for guidance on the matter, we find that Jesus said nothing at all about homosexuality. We do, however, have some admonitions from Paul the Apostle in his letter to the Romans and in his first letter to the Corinthians. Bear in mind that these letters were never intended to be canonical. Paul wrote his letters to specific churches in order to address specific problems and concerns. The Pauline letters are the interpretation of Christianity by one man who clearly knew nothing of the teachings of Jesus and which are scripture only by fiat. That said, his admonitions are not as ambiguous as what we find in the Old Testament. Quoting here from Romans chapter 1 verses 24 through 27. Therefore God gave pagans and idolaters up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. 
Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way also the men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were, uh, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. End of quote. To Paul's credit, immediately after these verses, he states that anyone who judges someone for this sort of behavior is no better than those who engage in the behavior. Nevertheless, it's not exactly a ringing endorsement. The verses in 1 Corinthians are of a similar nature, but elsewhere in that book, Paul suggests that all unmarried Christians remain so, unless remaining unmarried would drive them to fornication. Like Jesus, Paul was an apocalypticist and believed that the kingdom of God was soon to come, and he thought that it would be best for people to focus on that rather than on building a new marriage. But no one accepts that teaching anymore. Why should his admonitions against homosexuality be taken any more seriously than that? In 2006, the male prostitute Mike Jones reported that his services had been purchased on several occasions over three years by the evangelical pastor of the New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Ted Haggard. Haggard had been a vocal opponent of homosexuality throughout his ministry, and this is what drove Jones to come forward. As much as I abhor it, the fact that straight men demonize homosexuality is no surprise to me. It is well established. People fear what they don't understand. But the hypocrisy of this scandal infuriated me. It's a terrible thing to teach others to hate themselves. It's nihilistic and cruel, and to do so knowing that one is engaging in the very behaviors they're railing against is unconscionably hypocritical. And given how thin the scriptural support for such sermons is, it seems both tragic and mystifying as well. Christian churches have been presenting such a bigoted view of homosexuality over the years. If preachers are also going to quote from known forgeries like Ephesians and 1st and 2nd Timothy and extra-biblical sources like Augustine and Aquinas, I think it's only fair that the story of Jesus' gay orgy get its mention in sermons. All right, that's the end of what I originally wrote, and I'd like to extend that by talking about religious morality in general. I think that most of the people listening to a podcast called The Satanist Reads the Bible are going to be in agreement with me that there are some major problems with morality as posed by religion. A lot of it has historically been predicated on what's called divine command theory, which is the position that God tells us what is good and bad, right and wrong. There are two versions of this that might be called strong divine command theory and weak divine command theory. And if you just take an introductory look at ethical theories, such as you'll find in Russ Schaefer Landau's Fundamentals of Ethics, you'll see that there are some huge problems with both versions of this concept. Strong divine command theory posits that God is the one who defines good and evil. Things that are good are good, and things that are evil are evil, because God says so, and for no other reason. The problem there is that that means that God could have potentially defined the rape and murder of children as morally good. Under this theory, if the rape and murder of children had been defined by God as being morally good, it would be so, with every contrary argument being a complete non-starter. 
this seems very obviously flawed. To suggest that something so opposed to our interests as human beings is morally good contradicts every fiber of moral intuition in our being. It seems to us false by definition. Some of my work has been towards dispensing with notions of morality entirely and restricting ourselves to matters of fact and questions of aesthetic disposition. Strong divine command theory remains hugely problematic in that context as well. Strong divine command theory is nothing less than the promotion of the universally evil as the intrinsically good, a moral theory I'd hesitate to even ascribe to the most vile of fascist white supremacists. And yet, I regularly see defenses of, this exact, of exactly this position, often coupled with the claim that my lack of traditional religion equates to a lack of morality. One might respond with an argument that begins, but God would never. And I would respond with the argument, but God indeed has. For an example of this, let's read from Numbers chapter 31. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the Israelites on the Midianites. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses said to the people, Arm some of your number for the war, so that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So out of the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe were conscripted, twelve thousand armed for battle. Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, along with... Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for sounding the alarm in his hand. They did battle against Midian as the Lord had commanded Moses and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian, Evi, Rechem, Zor, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian, in addition to others who were slain by them. And they also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. The Israelites took the women of Midian and their little ones captive, and they took all their cattle, their flock, and all their goods as booty. All their towns where they had settled and all their encampments they burned, but they took all the spoils and all the booty, both people and animals. Then they brought the captives and the booty and the spoil to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the congregation of the Israelites at the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Moses, Eleazar the priest, and all the leaders of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. Moses became angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, Have you allowed all the women to live? These women here, on Balaam's advice, made the Israelites act treacherously against the Lord in the affairs of Peor, so that the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known a man by sleeping with him. But all the young girls who have not known a man by sleeping with him, keep alive for yourselves. Of course... While I think many people would claim strong divine command theory, I doubt many people would hold to it if they were pressed on the issue. Weak divine command theory is so thoroughly preferable to strong divine command theory that it's a shame that they're best described with the same terminology. It still has problems that I've never seen resolved in a way that is even remotely satisfactory, but at least it's not the most evil moral theory that's ever been posited, which is a title to which strong divine command theory may indeed lay claim. 
Weak divine command theory states that right and wrong exist independently of God and that God has perfect knowledge of this and transmits it to us. The obvious first question is, if God has recourse to some higher ontology, something that exists prior to God and upon which God is dependent, shouldn't that be our God? Weak divine command theory is immediately self-defeating. Either the theory is wrong, or God is not God. Bringing it back to the topic at hand, what do we have to go on by way of saying that homosexual love or any non-heteronormative love is morally wrong? Even weak divine command theory fails us here. Maybe such a prohibition served a purpose during a time in human history when the survival of the species was in doubt and reproductive relationships thus held a pragmatic advantage over non-reproductive relationships, but even that can be easily defeated. For example, love whomever you love, just make sure to get a willing woman pregnant somehow or other along the way. And in any case, given the present population trajectories, it's not really an issue anymore. And in fact, we might see a societal benefit to having more non-reproductive relationships. In the case of weak divine command theory, reason trumps God and everyone is free to love whom they love. And the strong divine command theorists, if they are indeed intent on holding fast to their morality, have effectively removed themselves from the field of reasonable moral discourse, so who cares what they think? That's it for the show today. I'm excited about what I've got for you next week. It was originally an exploration of a new ethical theory, but that didn't pan out. But a lot of the groundwork that I put together in, the, in support of that turned out to be interesting in itself. It's about satanic ethics, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. A Satanist Reads the Bible is written, produced, edited, and scored by me with the support of my partner, my patrons, and my audience. Thank you all for joining me today. Always something.